And um, on behalf of Big Tent USA, we want to welcome you to today's Tent Talk. Uh, Big Tent USA is building a voter coalition to protect the guardrails and democracy, to ensure that government is accountable to us, that it's transparent, and to increase civic participation. We have upcoming Big Tent USA Zoom events that we're excited for. On Wednesday, May 31st at 7, we have author and journalist Jonathan Alter and historian David Greenberg, who will discuss where we are in this country and how we got here and the pinnacle moments that brought us to where we are. On Tuesday, June 6th at 12 p.m., we have Maxine Thorne, CEO of Civic Influencers. Uh, they will give us a rundown about how to get voters out and voting um, on the ground data and winning strategies on campuses and in communities to boost their civic power and impact elections. And then on Wednesday, June 14th, Billy Ray, the Academy Award nominated screenwriter of the films, The Hunger Games and Captain Phillips and public opinion researcher, Gretchen Barton will discuss how voters feel about the state of the nation and how do we message across the political divide. You can sign up for these events. We're gonna be putting the links provided in the Zoom chat um, and our upcoming events. So I am pleased to introduce today's speakers, Jeff Palais, Ballotpedia's Editor-in-Chief, and Ryan Byrne, the Managing Director for Ballot Measures. For anyone who wants to make more informed decisions about political races and issues, Ballotpedia is a unique, valuable resource. They are a 501c3 nonpartisan entity. They analyze and make available online for free neutral objective information about almost any federal or state election at any level, whether executive, legislative, or judicial, about key trends such as growing use of citizen ballot measures to enact changes in state laws and constitutions. If you have any questions for Jeff and Ryan, please just put them in the chat and we'll get to as many as we can. Jeff and Ryan, it's all yours. Great, thank you very much. Uh, really happy to be here today. Thank you all for taking time. Uh, on this Tuesday to come uh, spend a little bit of time with us on this call. Uh, really excited to talk to you about Balpedia and what we do. So I will spend a few minutes just kind of giving some background about, you know, who's Balpedia, you know, what do we do? And then Ryan is our resident expert on ballot measures. So he will be able to talk all about the, the incredible world of ballot measures, which um, in case you don't know, is actually the, I, the project that got Ballotpedia started uh, 15 years ago was specifically just to cover ballot measures. Uh, we've grown quite a lot since then, but ballot measures as a result is always really near and dear to our heart. So we're really looking forward to talking to you about that today. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. And I'll walk through this presentation with everyone. So hopefully you can all see the screen now that says Ballotpedia, Encyclopedia of American Politics. So I'm sure everyone is familiar with this wonderful logo here, McDonald's. And for a very long time, they used to have this nice little tidbit at the very bottom that said billions and billions served. Uh, they probably stopped with this right when they hit right around say trillions of hamburgers served. But uh, we've been thinking about this, this little graphic and logo lately for us as well, uh, because we have now hit the point where we have past 400,000 articles on Ballotpedia. So Ballotpedia.org, if you visited it, has more than 400,000 articles that we regularly maintain and curate uh, that we provide for our readers to, like Susan said at the very top, uh, allow people to participate and understand in a neutral way uh, various elements of our American political system. So the number of articles that we're really proud of, and it says a lot more about our role as an encyclopedic resource, but really we're so much, so much more than that. 
Uh, and like I said, it's our 15th anniversary. Uh, so Valpy was found 15 years ago. So we're, we're really excited about celebrating that this year. So uh, like I said, I'll briefly talk about Valpedia. Ryan will give us our ballot measures deep dive, and then we'll have lots of time for Q&A at the end because we want to hear what you have to say. We want to hear what your questions are. So Valpedia is a 501c3 nonprofit. Valpedia is the digital encyclopedia of American politics, the nation's premier resource for unbiased information on elections, politics, and policy. We like to think that we're changing the way people connect with politics. Our content includes neutral, accurate, and verifiable information on government officials and the offices they hold, political issues, public policy, elections, candidates. We kind of like to say if you're Googling for information uh, at any time of year, whether it's what's on your ballot, uh, what are the polls close, what, learn about a candidate, the odds are you're going to find something on Ballotpedia. Our annual budget is around $9 million, and that's primarily supported through foundations and individual donors, anywhere from $5 and up. So like I said, we've been around since 2007 and we've received more than a billion lifetime page views. So this chart here just kind of gives you a sense of how Ballotpedia's traffic ebbs and flows, which is very much what you would expect in, for an organization that works around an elections cycle. Uh, even years, there are more people looking for information about politics, which leads to more page use for Ballotpedia. We're really proud of these page numbers in particular because we think it really represents an engaged American political voter demographic. If you're on Ballotpedia, you're actively looking for information, uh, which means that you are, you're trying to make an informed vote or an informed decision when you're having a conversation at the dinner table. Uh, so with each even year cycle, uh, we've seen more and more page views. Uh, that kind of peaked in 2020 and had took a little bit of a contraction in 2022, which is not surprising considering in 2020, well, there were a lot of people home with a lot more time on their hands uh, than, a, than a typical election cycle. This is a bar chart showing our growth of pages on Ballotpedia over time. So there are more than 585,000 elected officials in the country. That's quite a lot of uh, decisions for voters to make every year. And our goal is to cover every single one of them. That doesn't even include ballot measures. I'm just talking about the people who run for office. Uh, we, we believe that it'll be a, a better political climate when Ballotpedia has an article on every candidate and an article on every elected official and an article on every office. So with 585,000 elected officials, that will, there's quite a long way to go still, but uh, we're really proud of the growth we've seen over time with number of articles on Ballotpedia. And you can say, see last year we added 59,526 articles most of which were, more, were ultra local, we call them, uh, candidates. If you ever go to the polls and you look at your ballot and you go, I don't know any of the names on here. I know the congressman, maybe I know the state legislators, but what about your library board representative or your soil commissioner or your mosquito board commissioner? Uh, oftentimes there are names on ballots and, and we go into the vote and we don't know anything more than just the name. So we believe that uh, it, we will accomplish our mission when we can provide voters uh, a way to be informed when they're going into the polls, even for uh, those offices that are really down ballot to allow people to make, cast their vote that matches their values. Of those 400,000 articles, 50% of them are local because that's the vast majority of where things uh, play out politically in terms of the number of candidates and number of offices. 25% of our articles are state. So things like your state legislator, or a state executive official like a governor or a secretary of state. 15% of our articles are ballot measure articles, which I'm so excited for Ryan to talk all about. 
tens of thousands of uh, ballot measures have gone before voters over the years in all sorts of really interesting topic areas. And we build articles on all of the certified measures and all of the potential initiatives as well. Then 10% of our articles are federal. Even though the federal gets a lot of attention, uh, it's uh, in terms of the volume of articles on Ballotpedia, those are actually on the lower percent of, the, of things. Where does Ballotpedia get its uh, traffic from? If you've ever been to Ballotpedia, you probably experience something sort of like this. Uh, you go to Google, you type in a search term, and you see a link to Ballotpedia. So on average, most of our Ballotpedia content appears in the top five for relevant keywords, in the top three for 54% for of our keywords. And that's really uh, where, where most of our traffic comes from, which is why I like to say that the, the Ballotpedia reader is curious because they are looking for content, whether it's in Google or in Bing or wherever else it is that, that you're doing your search. And then you're coming to Ballotpedia through what we call the side door. But we've got more than just on-site content. Uh, we also have um, more than a dozen different newsletters that we publish on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. So we have newsletters like The Daily Brew, uh, which is three uh, top stories each morning. Uh, hopefully some of you are subscribers to that. Or we have The Weekly Brew, which is a condensed collection of the week's most viewed stories from The Daily Brew. Or a periodic weekly or monthly newsletters like The Ballot Bulletin or State Ballot Measures Monthly, which, which Ryan writes, which just actually came out earlier today. Uh, tracking all sorts of ballot measure certifications and, and news around them. All of our newsletters are, are free. You can just sign up for them and you can pick which ones you, you get. So uh, it's another way for us to engage with readers and, and help inform them is through our newsletters, not just our on-site content. Another one of our products that we're really proud of is the sample ballot. So if you come to Ballotpedia and you've got an election coming up, you simply plug in your address and you're gonna get a list of candidates, and issues, and stances, and ballot measures that are gonna be on your ballot. You can click on the candidate to read their biography, view their past election results, read their campaign themes or instances, or if they've taken our candidate survey, and much, much more. We currently include comprehensive election coverage for the 100 largest cities by population, as well as all state legislative, statewide, and congressional races across the country. We're really excited that we're, we're covering all school board elections this year in 10 unique states as part of our continued expansion down the ballot. And uh, this is a little bit of a sneak peek for everyone here, but we're actually planning to uh, relaunch our sample ballot later this year with sort of a 3.0 redesign that we're really excited about. That's gonna have a lot of really exciting new features. So with that, I'm gonna hand the microphone over to Ryan. He will talk through the state ballot measure part of our conversation. And then I've got a couple of conversation sort of questions that Ryan and I will go through, and then we'll open the floor for the group Q&A after that. So Ryan, I'll be your driver and you can uh, just tell me when to advance the slides. Awesome, great job. Thanks, Jeff. Right, so ballot measures. Most of you have probably encountered a ballot measure on your ballot, uh, but specifically looking at this map, this is, this is a map of citizen-initiated measures. So not every state provides a statewide initiative process. Uh, there are local initiatives in many jurisdictions across all these states. Uh, but at the state level, there's 26 that provide a statewide initiative or referendum process. You may be looking at this and live in one of these states and be thinking, well, I haven't seen an initiative before. So there, there's processes in all these states, right? Um, but they vary in terms of how often they're used you know, for various reasons. Uh, New Mexico has a veto referendum, but they don't happen very often. Mississippi has initiated constitutional amendments, but due to the way that it's written in the Constitution, that's a bit on hold right now. 
Illinois also has an initiated constitutional amendment, but it can only address the structure of the legislature. So, you know, it's a, a very specific topic. Um, we can go to the next one and I'll talk a little bit more about the other states as well. Right, so I was just talking about citizen initiated measures. It's probably pretty clear by the name what those are. People go out there, they can propose statutes or constitutional amendments, depending on the state, and collect signatures to place those on the ballot. Um, there, specifically, there's veto referendums as well, which are known in some states as people's vetoes, which I think illuminates how they function, right? A piece of legislation is passed, signed into law. People collect signatures to essentially veto that bill. Uh, it puts it on hold until people can address it. There's also an indirect process, like in Ohio, uh, where the legislature actually has an option to approve initiated statutes outright or let them go to the ballot. Now, beyond citizens, legislatures can vote to place things on the ballot. Sometimes statutes, there's different states have different laws about which statutes have to go on the ballot, or some, in some states, legislators may just decide to put an issue on the ballot because it's, it's a topic that they want voters to weigh in on or, or something like that. But every state except Delaware, so if you're from Delaware, you probably have never seen a statewide ballot measure. Um, every state except Delaware does require voter ratification for state constitutional amendments. So that's really the two big types, citizen initiated or legislatively referred. There's this kind of third bucket, which we can call automatic ballot measures or automatically referred ballot measures. And uh, that's the case where the state constitution itself contains language saying something like, every 20 years, voters must be asked a question about whether or not to hold a state constitutional convention. A number of states have a question like that, um, which they see at various periods, seven years, 10 years, 20 years, uh, it varies by state. We can jump to the next one. Right, so Ohio's been in the news a lot. Uh, not every state allows, not every one of those 26 states that has an initiative process allows it during odd numbered years. The vast majority of them require citizen initiated measures and often legislative referrals as well uh, to appear on even year ballots, right? Um, but Ohio's one where they can appear on that odd year ballot. So Ohio, uh, in Ohio, there's currently two initiatives geared for 2023. Uh, neither of them are certified for the ballot yet, but they are actively collecting signatures. One is a statute to legalize marijuana, which could be on the ballot this November. Like I said, with that indirect process in Ohio, they can collect one round of signatures, send it to the legislature. Legislature has 40 days to address it. In this case, they didn't address it. So just a couple weeks ago, May 3rd, uh, was that deadline. They didn't pass it. So now that group will collect a second round of signatures and try to get it on the November ballot. And then there's an initiated constitutional amendment as well to, in quotes, make and carry, to create a state constitutional right to, in quotes, make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions, including abortion until fetal viability. That could also be on the November ballot. Campaign is actively collecting signatures. Now there's also, at this point, one legislatively referred constitutional amendment certified for the ballot. And it's certified for a special election in August. So it would appear on the ballot before those November initiatives. And that is a constitutional amendment to increase the vote requirement for future constitutional amendments to 60% rather than a simple majority of votes. So there is an ongoing lawsuit that was just launched. So, uh, you know, that's going to be contested in court as to whether it can be an August election or not. Um, 
But if this amendment is passed in August, it would affect those November amendments, right? Again, marijuana is statutory, so it wouldn't affect that, but it could affect the abortion right related amendment and future amendments and, and other years if voters pass it. Next. All right, so this is a big topic. Uh, it's a trend, right? So abortion has really been a trend. I think a lot of people started paying attention in 2022 for obvious reasons, but uh, it's been a trend on the ballot since 1970. Uh, so in 2022, there were six ballot measures addressing abortion. That's the most on record uh, for a single year. Uh, but from 1970 to 2022, there were actually 53. And most of those 81% were um, the, the sponsors or supporters were organizations that describe themselves as pro-life, whereas 26% uh, or rather, sorry, uh, 10 of them were by organizations that describe themselves as pro-choice or in more recent years using the phrase pro-reproductive rights. So using the initiative on abortion policy was really um, something that organizations and campaigns in that pro-life camp utilized until rather recently. Uh, there were a few prior to 2022, but in 2022 is really where we saw um, those pro-choice organizations kind of lean into the ballot initiative again, probably for obvious reasons, uh, and so on and so forth. So we can take a little bit of a deeper dive here, so we can go into the next one. So Ballotpedia has broken down all these ballot measures since 1970. So you can see what their approval and rejection rates are. Uh, again, so campaigns have described themselves as pro-choice, constitutional rights, there's been three, and all three of them were approved. Granted, all three were in 2022. On the other side, uh, the campaigns have described themselves as pro-life. I think a big one in 2022, um, which we'll probably continue to see on that side, are these amendments related to constitutional interpretation. They essentially say the Constitution cannot be interpreted to establish a state constitutional right to abortion. What that's basically getting at is Right, there's lawsuits and judicial cases um, where courts may look at language in the Constitution and decide that it, it creates a right to a state constitutional right. So we're not talking about federal issues, right? State constitutional right to abortion. In a number of states, there's like a constitutional right to privacy or something like that. So these types of amendments say, like, well, you can't interpret it that way. You need an explicit. You would need an explicit right to abortion in the Constitution. Those kind of got a 50-50 break. Um, in fact, they all passed prior to 2022, and then 2022, they all failed. So uh, so you have an interesting breakdown there. And you can see the other numbers as well. You can go to Ballotpedia to, to kind of learn more about each of these measures as well. And go on to the next one. Uh, so I don't need to talk about this one in depth. This is just looking at 2022 again. Uh, all three of those constitutional amendments to create state constitutional rights were approved. California, Michigan, Vermont. Michigan was a bit different than California and Vermont because in California and Vermont, the legislature put them on the ballot. Um, polling as well as just, you know, political history, people kind of expected them to pass. Michigan being a bit more of a swing state, it was also a citizen-initiated measure. That's where a lot of the eyes were, which I think is, is similar to Ohio and why everyone's watching Ohio this year in terms of like what will voters do in Ohio. Going to the next one. So that other Ohio ballot measure, right, would create a supermajority vote requirement. Uh, in fact, it would create the second highest one in the country tied with Florida, right? Florida is the only state that currently requires a 60% vote for constitutional amendments. One state actually requires a higher vote. That's New Hampshire, where it's two-thirds, so, you know, 66.6667 um, and so on. 
one state requires uh, something higher than a simple majority, but not um, as high as 60, that's Colorado, where it was actually passed by citizen initiative, I believe back in 2016, uh, to require a 55% vote for constitutional amendments. Now you see all those states on the map that are orange. So states, eight states also have other requirements. Um, these can be things like the, a simple majority vote, but of registered voters, so turnout matters in that case, or total votes cast in the election. So if you skip a ballot measure, it's effectively no, or an either or, like Illinois is a good example of an either or. Uh, an amendment can receive 60% of the vote and pass in Illinois, uh, you know, votes just on that measure, or a simple majority of those total ballots cast. Last November was a good example where there is a constitutional amendment to create a state constitutional right to collective bargaining. It didn't receive 60, it received 57, but uh, enough people voted on the ballot measure itself. You know, they didn't skip that question that it still passed. So you can think of scenarios where like someone might vote for governor, but skip the ballot measure. That's kind of how that one play out. So there's eight states that kind of have those either or, or based on registered voters or based on total votes cast in the election. So again, Ohio would be tied with Florida as the second highest. So thinking about other things, uh, abortion's obviously a huge trend with ballot measures. I mean, with Dobbs and the federal constitution, kind of punting it back to the states. Um, it's an opportunity for campaigns in those states with initiated constitutional amendments to establish state constitutional rights to abortion, uh, fairly explicit ones, right? Like, like um, in Michigan or potentially in Ohio in November. Uh, but thinking about other things, so for 2023, because we do have some odd year ballot measures, you can see that it's an average of 32 for the past 10 years. So it's it's nowhere near the number that you see in even numbered years. But there's a few states like Texas where you virtually only see them in odd numbered years. So Texas will likely vote on, I don't know, six. It varies a lot by year. It could be six. It's usually a significant number. Six is still a big number to vote on your ballot. And sometimes, you know, it's 12, 15, 18. So we'll see. A lot are are proposed right now in Texas, one of the highest uh, rate of proposals. So we'll see what actually makes the ballot as their legislative session begins to year down this month. So 13 are certified so far, average is 32. We'll keep seeing those measures increase through the end of August. And then thinking about 2024, because this process is often multi-years. And, and so we're constantly looking out on the horizon about well, what's in the future. In fact, we we created a we created resources recently for those automatic ballot measures and state constitutional convention questions going out to 2040. Uh, so we very much do look to the future and don't want to lag on things that are happening now that affect you know future elections. So so far, 34 measures have been certified for state ballots in 2024. That increased one this morning from 33. So the average is 157 for the past 10 years. Again, that can vary. It was really high, uh, 180 back in the early 2010s. The, the past couple of years, it's been more around 140. Um, so we'll see where 2024 falls. So topics we're watching, right? We still have a ways to go. 34 measures, likely, you know, average 157. So there aren't really any like big and big notable new trends yet, but the trends that we are seeing are ones that we've kind of seen for at least the 2022 cycle, if not a little longer. And ballot measure trends tend to be more than just like a one-year thing. They, they go over several years. Uh, abortion and state constitutional rights is still a big one. Election and voting policies kind of on both sides of the aisle with ballot measures has been a big topic. 
minimum wage for probably a decade now has been a trend. And we see a number of like $15 minimum wage initiatives uh, circulating or have been certified for 2024, as well as ballot measure law changes. So like that Ohio 60% one, uh, we've seen other ones in South Dakota proposals and other states like Arizona and Arkansas that may make the ballot. And we can uh, move on. Yeah, question and answer. I think Jeff's actually going to probably engage with a few questions himself of interesting things that I may have missed that I can help answer. I am. So I am really excited. I want to pepper Ryan with a few questions of my own. I know there's some really great questions that um, people have been adding to the chat box there. So please keep those coming. Uh, we're, we're excited to answer yours. But uh, I sort of, I wanted to talk with Ryan a little bit first because I always feel like these are a little more fun when they're an engaging back and forth and not just us sort of lecturing. Uh, so Ryan, in particular, one of the things that I, I love about BALP is database. What we have with respect to uh, ballot measure content is we have tens of thousands of ballot measures that have appeared in the ballot over the last several hundred years, going back to the 1700s uh, in our country's history, uh, which lets us do a lot of really analysis and sort of poking around to see what interesting ballot measures have appeared. Uh, so for instance, today is May 16th. Ryan, tell us what interesting ballot measures have appeared on May 16th in the history of, of our great nation. Right, so May 16th is a big day in Pennsylvania as it is this year as well. I'm actually a Pennsylvania resident, so I'm gonna go vote later this afternoon. So, you know, I was looking back through our database and what has happened on May 16th? Based on when primaries fall during uh, during this time of year, a lot of the ballot measures were in Pennsylvania. So I'll, uh, I'll be picky here and select my own home state for this answer. So May 16th, uh, in 1967, actually, voters approved a number of state constitutional amendments uh, that are, you know, still affecting the government structure today of Pennsylvania. They're, they're very prominent uh, features of our state government. We have a continuous two-year uh, legislative session, which was approved by voters in 1967. 1967, voters also approved an amendment to create an absentee voting process providing that the governor and lieutenant governor run on a joint ticket in general elections. And then um, about a decade later, later in 1978, on May 16th, Pennsylvania voters approved an amendment to make the attorney general an elected rather than appointed position. So again, you can tell May 16th is a, a big day in Pennsylvania history, and it is today again. <laughs> we have a lot of fun with that, uh, just kind of looking around at the various uh, items that voters have had to uh, cast an opinion on over the years. So um that's really that's one of those fun parts about our database is being able to explore uh history like that so um i'm sure if anyone has actually any dates they're really curious about ryan could probably plug them in at some point during this call so if you're interested in one date in particular uh just don't say like the tuesday in november because that'll be way too i have way too many results um so let's talk maybe for a second about uh trying to my my last sort of item because ballot measures and laws governing ballot measures has really gone through cycles. Um, we saw certain kinds of bills appearing before legislatures, before ballot existed in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and then we see certain kind of bills appearing today. Um, so I'm curious for, you know, what have you seen with respect to what people are writing about ballot measure, what we call ballot measure law, uh, and then what, what it looked like in the past? Right, yeah, so ballot measure law, again, Ohio, has been in the in the news a lot lately. Uh, and I will say there's been a lot of proposals to change the ballot measure process since about 2016. Um, 
uh, a lot of the news articles, I think there was an AP article yesterday that was widely published across multiple platforms um, about how abortion-related ballot initiatives are affecting um, proposals to change ballot measure processes. Ohio is an interesting example because it, it's one of the few states where like the legislative sponsor did kind of make an explicit statement about that and, and the potential connection. Um, so yeah, we've seen a lot of changes. We don't really know if this year has more changes yet. Uh, we've seen a number of suggestions that it will, but a lot of legislative sessions are still ongoing. So, so far we've tracked, I believe 20 changes to the ballot measure process uh, that have been um, approved in the states. So we often have a good picture by the middle of the year. A lot of states wrap up their legislative sessions in like around this time of year, May, June, so usually by July 1st, we can tell, has there been an increase in changes? Now, compared to prior decades, this is actually a really interesting question. We we don't necessarily have the data to talk about like the extent of those changes in the past, um, but based on historical writing, so like in the 80s and 90s, there was a period of time in the ballot measure world, and I'll briefly step back for a second, right? I think a lot of initiatives right now are kind of used by like progressive leaning groups. Um, but in the 80s and 90s, you had a, a lot of them used by like more conservative or, or libertarian leading groups in a period of politics known as the tax revolt. That's what it was called in California. You guys may have heard of it. If you're from California, you know what I'm talking about, probably. Um, so there's a bit of a, a, a thing there where like there are certain legislators probably more like uh, on the Democratic side responding. So there's this question that we don't really have a good answer to yet, but we're digging into of like, does the party, how does the party in power relate to direct democracy and ballot law changes? So that's definitely something that there's bound to be some awesome historical research on and something where we're developing the data to start answering those questions. It's a really interesting question. It's sort of similar to redistricting, what we've seen over the years of covering redistricting. Whatever party is in power in a state wants to use legislative controlled redistricting processes because they're the majority party. Then the minority party will say, hey, you know what's a really good idea? We should have an independent redistricting commission. Wouldn't that be great? Because we're in the minority. Uh, and that this kind of crosses over with both parties depending on what state you're in. And the same thing seems to happen at times with ballot measure law. Well, the party in power, they'd really rather not see ballot measures as much because they're in power, they wanna set the policy agenda. And the party that isn't controlling the, the legislative agenda they would be more willing to say, hey, let's use the ballot measure process if we have that in our state. So uh, it's, it's really interesting to go back and forth. So uh, I think I want to, uh, these are great questions coming that I see in the chat box and I wanna turn it over to Bill so he can go working through this. So uh, Bill, if you, I'm gonna hand the microphone back over to you and uh, Ryan and I will start getting ready to answer all of your great questions here, everyone. Thanks for being so engaged. Okay, well, I am not Susan Lehman. Uh, I am Bill Sussman and <laughs> Thank you, Susan, for stepping in. Um, hopefully, my internet will not go out again. Uh, if it does, we have operators standing by. Um, so one question we're seeing, a fair number of uh, iterations in the chat, and I think is um, where is the money coming from now with, with ballot initiatives to fund them? I mean, is it, you know, is this, you know, big money, big dark money? Is this small donor money? I mean, how transparent is the process? It, you know, how do you find out, if at all, and how can voters find out, you know, who's actually running the show behind the scenes? That's a good question. I can definitely dive into that one because I think our, on our pages, we do cover ballot measure campaign finance for every 
uh, certified ballot measure. So we provide where the money is coming from and who's funding those PACs. Now, there, there don't really tend to be a lot of super PACs or other things like that with ballot measures due to some, con some lawsuits back in the, the 1970s and 80s. Ballot measures are actually governed very differently than candidates. Um, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, they're more akin to like lobbying than they are to candidate elections. So there aren't really things like um, the caps on the amount of money and things like that. So people tend to just give to the PACs. Nothing else is really required uh, due to the, due to the, how that's set up. So where the money's coming from, you know, it's going to vary by campaign. It's going to vary by ballot measure. Yeah, there's not really all that many volunteer driven campaigns anymore. There's still a few, and it's always really exciting to see that someone got something on the ballot using volunteers. Um, but right, there's often uh, organizations or businesses or unions or some other entity that uh, helps fund the campaigns to get a measure on the ballot and helps fund the opposition as well. Um, yeah, such an interesting question. I, I dropped in our analysis article that Ryan and his team put together every year. Um, the, the couple thoughts I'll add on top of what Ryan just said are that um, there's usually a handful of measures that account for a big percentage of the overall spending each year, whether it's you know a ride sharing measure, an Uber and Lyft are giving money or um, a dialysis related measure or a a power line measure in Maine, I still don't quite understand it, but Ryan knows much more about it. Um, so there's usually a handful of measures that will account for a, a big, you know, substantial portion of the, the money that comes in. Um, but the other thing that Ryan kind of alluded to, which is really interesting, is the process for getting ballot measures on the ballot, particularly initiatives, is typically run by petition management companies. And in most states that have initiatives, they are paying their petition gatherers to go collect signatures. Um, and what we've seen over the last several cycles is like everything else in the country with inflation, it has gotten more expensive. Uh, so it's more expensive to buy an egg today. It's more expensive to get gas. It's also more expensive to collect one single signature uh, for the ballot. So I think that's gone, Ryan, what, from like $6 a signature to, to $12 to, to 15 or something like that right now. So it's grown quite a bit over the years. Right, yeah, we saw a big spike um, over the last cycle with COVID, labor shortages, other types of inflation-related matters. Uh, it jumped quite a bit. Yeah, and with, with respect to I mean, all this information that you make available on your website about ballot measures, um, you know, there's been some um, ballot measures, I'm remembering the Kansas abortion referendum in particular, where the legislature worded it, one would say, backwards, so that you had to vote no on the referendum question in order to support abortion rights, which may have been a coincidence, may not have been. Um, is, does Ballotpedia do any explaining of, you know, what the question is and, and you know, if you want to, you know, vote yes, if you want the, the measure to pass, what that means, if you don't want it to pass, what that means, so voters don't get confused? Yeah, I can jump in there. Yeah, so we, provide multiple summaries of ballot measures. So for a certified ballot measure, we provide what we call a yes, no box. Um, so what a yes vote essentially means and what a no vote essentially means. I shouldn't say essentially, what they actually mean. Um, sometimes we're able, depending on the context, to like explain the status quo with a no vote. But then we also provide like longer summaries uh, in overviews. And we can provide even longer summaries than with what we call measure design sections. Um, so yeah, we we attempt to write out 
what a yes vote would do and what a no vote would do. Because I think you're right that ballot questions, regardless of like whether it's intentional or not, ballot questions are difficult <laughs> to understand. They're difficult to read in many states. Um, so yeah, it's something that that we utilize in explaining content to readers. Yeah, the yes, no boxes are a key feature of our pages. They're at the very top. Uh, you find them in the sample ballot lookup tool that we have. You find them in all of our ballot measure articles. Um, the very simple, well, as simple as we can make it straightforward. Yes means this, no means that. Um, but specifically, you know, to build on Ryan's point that the subjectivity can be debated about the intent that goes behind the wording of various questions, but veto referendums in particular are often really complicated because of what you said, Bill. No means yes and yes means no. Uh, and it's not always very obvious uh, to know that because you're specifically sometimes voting no to affirm a law. So veto referendums make the whole world of direct democracy a little more complicated. But, but you do put out the information to help people understand with their, which, which lever they're pulling and what that means. That's right. That's why we're here. At least that's what we like to do, yes. Okay. And in, in, you, know, you mentioned before, I mean, there, there's, there seems to be this general legislature versus voters push me, pull you, um, depending on you know, who's in power. Um, Ohio is a perfect example. Um, you know, this, this initiative on abortion rights is gathering signatures, and the legislature keeps moving the goalposts for you know, what, uh, what it takes to get it passed, because this special election in August is to raise it to 60. If that passes in November, if the ballot initiative is on the question, is on the ballot, it's 60% and not 50 plus one, which is traditionally what democracy was about. So is, is that a trend you're seeing more generally? I mean, you know, it's in the news and you, know, you see the legislature is trying to change things to make it more difficult for these things to pass, depending on what they are. Yeah, so there has been a, a trend in terms of creating supermajority requirements for ballot measures and constitutional amendments. Uh, I mean, there's been a number of states like New Hampshire, for example, it's been in the state constitution for a very, very long time. Uh, but then starting around 2006, we saw the 60% vote requirement uh, go on the ballot in Florida. And then that was kind of the only one for a bit. And then uh, around 2016, 18, 20, 2022, we started seeing a lot more of them. Uh, last cycle, there were there were several. So in Arkansas, voters rejected a 60%. In South Dakota, they rejected one. Now in Arizona, they approved one. Um, you know, it was close. I think it was like 50, it was somewhere between 50 and 55%. Uh, but that one dealt specifically of taxes. So like not constitutional amendments or something like that. Well, it might be a constitutional amendment. It could be statutory, but it was more topic-based. Anything to approve new taxes or something like that. But yeah, so it's one of the really One of the really interesting things, this right. might be a little bit in the weeds, uh, but it's one of the most fascinating parts of uh, ballot measure law that I uh, like to follow are what we call legislative alteration. So there are some states where citizens can go put an initiative on the ballot to pass a law, and then the legislature can just come back in the next session and say, you know what, we don't like that law, <laughs> just can't get rid of it. Uh, not every state can do that. Um, and so what you end up seeing happen in those cases are citizens will then try to put an, a, an amendment on there to actually change the constitution, because legislatures in those cases cannot change the constitution unilaterally, but they can change statutes. Ryan, do you want to clarify? Yeah. 
something wrong that's, there. That's definitely the thing. So going back to Arizona, there was actually another constitutional amendment alongside that um, 60% one to make it a little easier for the legislature to repeal statutes. But that one failed. Voters rejected that one. Um, so Arizona is one of those states. In fact, it's just Arizona and California. And other states have rules around the number of years or like maybe you need a supermajority legislative vote. Uh, before you can amend a voter-approved initiative. But in California and Arizona, uh, the legislatures actually can't. Um, they can in kind of narrow ways if it's keeping with, usually there's something like keeping with the purpose of the original measure. That can be subjective, so it often goes to court if the sponsors disagree with that judgment. Um, that's why in California, sometimes you see measures, uh, daylight savings is a good one a couple of years ago. Um, because daylight savings was passed like oh back in back decades before uh but it was passed by ballot ballot initiative in california voters actually needed to approve a new initiative that would allow the state to change its daylight savings even though uh, it, it needs to kind of wait for federal law to change but um so yeah that's that's something you see it varies by state when legislators when how if they can amend a citizen initiated measure and Jeff, I guess this would be more question for you. We're seeing some questions in the chat about, you know, how you get your information out. Um, you mentioned earlier that Ballotpedia is in the top five, I think, of Google searches. And do you have folks who monitor um, regularly to make sure that there aren't, you know, bad actors out there directing people by use of keywords to misinformation instead of, you know, the actual facts? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we, we do monitor what we call our, our SERP results, which is search engine result placement. So we we have processes by which we go do our own searching for, for terms and see where our articles land and what articles are also in vicinity of our own. Um, you know, we certainly can't control search results uh, and we can't control what other entities are publishing, um, but we can take efforts on our end to produce what we think is the best quality content that we can uh, and trust that that um, quality will win the day and quality will be king. So, um, so far it's worked out pretty well. And um, you know, in, in terms of, of what you actually are doing, you, know, you, you mentioned these candidate surveys. I'm, I'm moving off ballot measures to give Ryan a chance to catch his breath. Um, if, if, how do you verify what the candidates say when they respond to your survey if you do? And I think I've frozen Jeff. There you go. You're good. Uh, I hear your question, Bill, and it's a great question about our candidate surveys. We've had um, nearly 10,000 candidate surveys um, submitted to Ballotpedia over the last uh, six election years, give or take. Um, and we do not verify the actual content that they're submitting in terms of, like, let's say someone says, you know, I was employed by Bank of America for 15 years. We don't go do a reference check and call Bank of America and ask them if this candidate did indeed work there. Uh, we do verify that the survey was submitted by the individual. So they have to go through a series of steps, you know, whether it's, you know, verification with their driver's license or a number of other different methods that we lay out for candidates to prove and verify that, yes, this is me. I'm, I'm Ryan Byrne and I'm submitting this candidate survey for my profile. And then we will publish that, uh, you know, verbatim. And our our belief is that uh, we we trust voters and we trust the the system, and voters will make judgments and determinations off of candidates and what they say. And if a candidate is is lying, voters will um, 
we'll figure that out. It's, it's kind of our hope and dream. Uh, so that's our sort of process for, for processing and verifying surveys. It would be quite an effort to get what we hope to get of hundreds of thousands of candidate surveys over time and to verify all of them uh, would, would likely be a very non-sustainable scaling uh, process. But uh, verifying that at least the candidate is who they say they are is, is the key part of our process there. So George Santos did not submit a survey. Just kidding. Um, so in, in terms of, of what you folks see as your biggest challenges going forward over the next couple of years, I mean, there's so much data out there. I mean, what do you see as Valapedia's biggest challenges going forward to keep doing the work that you're doing so people can be informed? That's a great question. Uh, I like that one. Um, I'm sure Ryan has a specific answer about ballot measures. I might let him feel that on, in a couple minutes. But when I think about the organization and our sort of overall challenge, it's it's about growing down the ballot, um, getting more information about those really local offices, those local candidates, those local races, and and helping voters to get information that allows them to vote their values, to uh, be informed going to the polls. And that's a really big challenge to not only get the names. First, you have to get the names of who's running for office. I can't tell you the number of times we've tried to cover a race and an election office will say, why do you want to know that information? <laughs> why do you want to know who's, on the, who's running? Or, oh, we had an election last week. We just didn't tell anyone. So uh, once you get down at the really local level, information availability can be, can be a real challenge. But uh, we feel very excited uh, about the a process we have in place for how we import that information. Uh, and as that grows and develops, the next step, once you get the information, is building on top of the simple basics with information that tells you about who they are, whether that's their candidate survey or who's endorsing them or whose endorsement are they seeking or who's donating to them. Uh, that's all information that really helps inform voters and tells them, okay, I like this person, I would like to vote for them, or I don't like this person, I'd rather not vote for them. So that's really uh, our, our continual big challenge, I think, is um, is getting uh, down the ballot. It's sort of the, you might say it's the last mile problem. Um, it's not so hard to get federal and state information about elections and candidates there. Uh, we all see it and we can read about it in any news service you follow. It's the local stuff that's where that gets a lot more challenging, and but for us, exciting. So, Ryan, I don't know if you have anything specifically to ballot measures that you, you see as an exciting challenge in the next few years. Oh, I was going to say basically the same thing, except applied to ballot measures. So, local ballot measures can be quite a challenge to cover. You know, in big cities like use Pennsylvania again, uh, Philadelphia, it's not hard to find them, but in other places like a neighboring town to mine is voting on a ballot measure to allow. Uh, alcohol sales. It's currently a dry town. And, you know, they're a small town. They don't have their ordinances and resolutions aren't published somewhere. Uh, basically, no one, the, the public had a difficult time knowing about this, right, until sample ballots were published on the county website a couple of weeks before the election. And in some other smaller counties than the one I live in, there, there might not be readily available sample ballots either. So that's definitely a biggest challenge, is right. It's it's scaling up in order to go down ballot um, with ballot measures, but it's an exciting challenge. There's a lot, you know. We cover hundreds of of state ballot measures and hundreds, sometimes a thousand local ballot measures each year. Um, but you know, there's still tens of thousands of local ballot measures out there to cover.
Okay. Um, and one other question we came in in the chat. Um, do you do you have people using your site? You know, you know young people, older people. Um, you know, in what points in the cycle your your usage is spike, if at all? Yeah, that's a great question. We do know a, a good bit of information about that. So. Um, our site usage is really spread across the demographics. Um, about 20% of our, our users are between the age group of 25 and 34, and about 13% of them are age 65 and up. So there really isn't one demographic uh, that is, you know, representing 50% of our, our readership or anything like that. Um, we've monitored that closely over the years, and it's been fairly consistent. Um, Age group of 18 to 24, 15%. Age group of 45 to 54, 16%. Really, really quite similar. Uh, and I think we've, we find that, that that makes a lot of sense to us because it's there, there's a wide availability of the internet and search engines today. And uh, if you're looking for information about the American political system, you're going to find Ballopedia. Um, obviously, that the readership spikes dramatically around a, a November election day. So. We like to think that's kind of like if you're um, if you're a family that goes out to dinner once a year, maybe on Mother's Day, like this past weekend, uh, and that's your one day a year where you go out to dinner. Restaurants are really not going to get you to go out to dinner that much. They can't get you to convert you because you just go out once a year. Uh, we have a, a a lot of our readers are like that about politics. Um, I'm sure everyone here is is fairly engaged because you're here on a Tuesday at noon and, and having this conversation with us. Um, everyone who works about PDA, we, we are in an engaged political uh, sort of readership. But there are a lot of Americans out there who are perfectly content to just, they look up information about their polls the day before they vote in November. And we see that with our traffic patterns. There's a, a very significant spike in the run up to the election. Okay. But we're very happy that one and two voters come to Ballotpedia. I'll bet you are. Um, so what can we, what can, you know, uh, we regular folks out here, what can we do, you know, as citizens, you know, to make sure we stay informed and make sure we stay involved and, you know, help other people that we know get involved other than tell them to go to Ballotpedia.org. Yeah, I think, uh, tell them to go to Ballotpedia.org. Uh, tell them to donate, of course. We're always open and, and thankful for that. Uh, we have a volunteer program as well uh, for anyone who's interested. It's a, an asynchronous volunteer program. You know, you can do it from your home. Um, so that's always a, a fun way to, to get engaged and to help because our, our volunteers help collect information that we publish on Ballotpedia to help inform other voters. Uh, so that's certainly one thing. Um, Donate and thank you, Vanessa, for sharing that link. We, we really appreciate that. Of course, um, any little bit helps, uh, but uh, those are some of the great ways. And I think just, you know, sort of like you're, you're saying, Bill, um, staying informed and, trusting your, your neighbors and your friends and, you know, being warm and receptive and caring and understanding of one another is probably the simplest thing we can all do. Right. But those are probably just the things I tell my kids so often that is why I think about it. Now, I, I want to be respectful of people's time. So I think we're going to wrap up in a second, but if people have, and there are questions that have not been gotten to some great questions um, and they wanted to reach out to Ballotpedia to ask them directly, how would they do that? Yeah, so one, the simplest thing to get in touch with us at any time is editor at ballotpedia.org. Uh, so you can just type your question in there and our, our team will, will, will process and field that. Um, I would, I, I saw these 
chat questions come in. They're, they're really great. I'd love to connect with Vanessa or you, Bill, and I, we can kind of compile a list and anybody can get their question answered. I will personally go ahead and I'll send out a note to Vanessa that she can distribute. Um, in particular, I really love the AI question they got dropped in because that's something that we, well, like every other organization, we're thinking pretty regularly about. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure we get all those questions answered uh, if we don't get to the next three minutes. <laughs> Yeah, because I'm a chat bot, so this is useful for me. Um, so, um, the, um, all right, and, and in terms of people saying, same thing, just write to editor at Ballotpedia, because that sounds interesting. Jeff, you're muted. You said in terms of what now? I'm sorry, I missed what you said there. If people wanted to take advantage or volunteer somebody else for that volunteer uh, position that you mentioned, how would they get in touch with Ballotpedia? Same way? Yeah, so we, I'll, I'll make that link available uh, and I'll, I'll drop that in the chat box momentarily. But we have two core volunteer programs. One is basically a volunteer program for anyone, anytime. It's, it's really straightforward. Um, but we also have a fellowship program, which is for high school and college students. So, um, and that's a bit more of a structured um, and dedicated time. But I will drop that link in now. That's great. Okay. So while Jeff is doing that, I'm going to give the benediction. Um, I don't know how you folks do this on $9 million a year, but thank you for doing that. Um, and please do donate to them, folks. They are a tax-deductible 501c3. Um, and you can visit their website, like as he said, ballotpedia.org. And as far as Big Tent USA is concerned, uh, we hope to see you at the upcoming events that Susan mentioned on May 31st, June 2 Sign up by visiting our own website, bigtentusa.org. So thanks everybody for joining us today and thanks for putting up with my internet wonkiness and um, everybody take care. Bye-bye.